We live in a day and age awash in conversation about fairness, justice, and equality. And whenever something bad happens, and it seems to happen regularly, we want a Census Bureau report on those people who are involved. What was their age, and their gender, and their race, and their sexual orientation, and their educational level, and political party? And then we want to explain everything about them, their heart, their motives, their intentions, their value, based on that. Have you noticed? We don't want to get to know them. We don't want to let them speak for themselves because we've already concluded who they are and whatever credibility they have by those categories. In fact, we've often decided what they're worth. Have you noticed that? If there was ever a time in which followers of Jesus Christ could distinguish themselves by how they view, how they treat other people, especially one another, I would submit to you that time is now. Because everyone wants fairness and equality and justice. Everyone wants the dignity of being loved and respected, but few receive it. And James tells us how we can experience that reality as part of the body of Christ. For love lifts up. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2. I hope you brought a copy of the scriptures. If you didn't and you'd like something in your hand, just raise your hand and one of our hosts will give you a copy of the Bible. Uh, that's a gift to you if you don't own one, on loan to you. If you just forgot yours at home, you can turn that in at the end. James chapter 2, and you can also follow along in the worship program or online, gracepolaris.org slash program, as we look at those first 13 verses of James's second chapter. I'm going to invite you to stand. We often do this here at Grace in honor of the Word of God. We hear much from man, but we need to hear from God, and we do so when we open the Bible. James chapter 2, I'll be reading from the New International Version, beginning in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they, are, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who belong, to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks. You may have a seat. Thank you for honoring the scriptures in that way. Before we begin, we need to look at the context, what the essence of true religion is, that God calls us to help the vulnerable and the marginalized. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, which we just read, is kind of an in-your-face example about what godly living really looks like in the family of God. But we have to go back to the end of chapter 1 to see the context. Let's look back before we move forward. James chapter 1, verse 26, James addresses the connection between how we talk and what we claim religiously. And he says, in short, those who don't control their speech, they don't have any genuine claim as godly religious people. They're they're self-deceived. They're pagans in religious clothing because our mouths reveal our hearts. Jesus says so. In fact, we're going to see that in detail in James chapter 3 in a few weeks. But the questions we might as well pose today, are you a good listener? Do you listen in order to understand, or do you listen to formulate a rebuttal? Are you a kind speaker? Do your words build up, affirm others? Is your speech wholesome and winsome, or is it crude and rough? Verse 27 there sets the stage then for chapter 2. Instead of describing worthless religion, now James describes commendable religion. And there is such a thing, godly religion in his followers. The kind that's full of integrity, the, the kind where our walk matches our talk, where our demonstration matches our confession. And James mentions two characteristics that are praiseworthy of that kind of religion, caring for the vulnerable and guarding our character. Private and public morality, in the best sense, because true religion is characterized by a life of obedience before God. It's a fascinating combination. It's a convicting one. Caring for orphans and widows is a common way of summarizing caring for those who are marginalized and vulnerable. And back in ancient society and much of our world today, those two groups rose to the top, rise to the top in their vulnerability. Orphans, of course, are those who have been abandoned by their parents for a variety of reasons, and they have needs. Widows have been abandoned by their husband, not maliciously, but because he's no longer there, and they have needs. Needs for protection, for income, often without an appealing future. They need others to look out for them, and this is commendable when we do. Because as Martin Luther said a long time ago, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. The other side of the coin there, not being polluted by the world, is another way of saying holy living. This is what you do when no one else is looking. For instance, is your money management characterized by debt and hoarding, or is it characterized by generosity and simplicity? Do your sexual choices combine or correspond to God's design? Do you treat other people as those to be used for your good 
or served for their good? What are your priorities when no one is looking? Public and private morality. Many people would say, well, the liberals love the first. So they like it when James gets in the face of those libertarian conservatives who want to wash their hands of those who have faced misfortune in life, sometimes of their own doing and full of needs. The conservatives love the second. So James gets in the, in the face of those bleeding heart liberals who, who proclaim compassion for the vulnerable, but give little thought about personal righteousness and follow the passions of this world. Public and private morality. Believers ought to love and to do both. See, Christianity emphasizes personal purity as well as practical public com compassion. John Piper, a pastor in our day, says to the one, James says, care about private morality, chastity, honesty, fidelity, modesty, purity. To the other, he says, care about justice and works of compassion. Do both concerns characterize you? This is a call to true religion, not just a personal call. It's actually a call to the local church. We're responsible for one another. We're responsible to help one another from being polluted by the world in our finances, in our relationships, in our sexuality, in our marriages, in our families, in our priorities, in our entertainment. And we're responsible to care for the vulnerable and the marginalized among us. In fact, so much so that from the very beginning, the early church put programs into place to make sure that they were caring for those who belonged to Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Widows there of two different ethnicities, or, or we might even say races, Hebraic and Hellenistic. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Some have called this proto-deacons. These are people who are serving in essential areas to make sure that the body of Christ is cared for. To make sure that favoritism and partiality were not part of the church of Jesus Christ. How we live matters. How we live reflects on the gospel. The gospel of God's justifying grace governs not only how we're converted to Christ, but also how we live afterward. And with that context, we're ready to dive into James chapter 2. First, the command. As we follow along the logical argument of James. The command, favoritism forbidden. Preferential treatment has no place in the church. Here's the clear command of this passage. Everything else that follows is commentary, illustration, application. Don't show favoritism. Some of your Bibles, partiality. 
It doesn't fit what it means to be in the family of God. It doesn't fit who Jesus is. Jesus is the glorious one here. And, and favoritism defaces Jesus. The, the word there for favoritism or partiality literally means showing the face. It refers to making judgments about people based upon external appearance, based upon what society tells us is valuable. And in doing so, in making those judgments, we make sure to keep our social status above the waterline. But God doesn't do this. God is, as the old King James says, no respecter of persons. We see that in a lot of places in the New Testament. We see that all the way back in the Old Testament where we're told that people look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the testimony of Scripture is clear. We're not to judge people based upon external factors, dress, color, skin, physical appearance, weight. Height, age, hair length, hair color, smell, tattoos, and the list goes on. We're told from a young age, don't judge a book by its cover because you might get it wrong. You might misjudge it. James says here, don't judge a person based upon outer appearance because you might misjudge them. Every person, every person is made in the image of God and has value to God. Do you believe that? We live in a day and age that continues to push that aside. We've got TikTok and Snapchat and all kinds of ways to, to show the externals, but to never get at the heart. Those things only go skin deep. James is speaking specifically here to followers of Jesus, and he's especially interested in how we treat one another as part of the body of Christ, including especially when we gather. There's a verse in the New Testament that's often quoted in a variety of settings that has relevance here. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, so he takes differences in ethnicity, differences in socioeconomic status, differences in gender. And he says, these are not determinative. They don't change someone's worth. Because in the body of Christ, frankly, in humanity, we all have equal value and we have equal need. Jesus gives us the one. Jesus remedies the other. There's kind of a sister verse here from that same Paul, who wrote Galatians 3.28, in Colossians 3.11, we read this. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So you see some repetition there and some new categories that Paul uses. These are all the ways back then that people would distinguish us from them. This group, that group. Now, we all recognize in, within humanity there are all kinds of differences. There's great diversity. But Paul and James says here that that diversity, those categories, they, they, they are not the final arbiter. They may have social meaning to us, personal meaning to us. We've always thought of ourselves in categories or groups. 
But knowing Jesus Christ radically alters the weight that we give to those categories. Or at least it should. The point of Colossians 3.11 and Galatians 3.28 for that matter is not that cultural, ethnic, and racial differences have no significance. They do. We know that. The point is they are no barrier to profound, personal, intimate fellowship. It's not that you lose your gender or ethnicity or social status when you come to Christ. It doesn't evaporate the moment you trust Jesus. But it's relativized because of him. The illustration has been given singing alto is different than singing bass. There's a significant difference there, as any choir director could tell you. But the difference is no barrier to participation in the choir. It's an asset. We're not interested in just diversity for diversity's sake. We're interested in living out and showing Colossians 3.11 to a world that needs to see it. So you're sitting there and you say, okay, James, we shouldn't discriminate. I agree. I know that. In fact, I've known it from birth. My country's Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. So I get it, James. I don't show favoritism. I'm really sorry to hear that some people back in your day and maybe some people in our day do, but not me. So wrap it up. Tell this preacher to finish the sermon. We don't think we show partiality or favoritism, do we? If I took a poll here and said, how many of you show partiality? I doubt, I doubt we'd get many hands. How many of you are racist? How many of you hate women? How many of you think the poor should just get lost? Oh, not many of you would raise your hands. We just can't fathom we're like this. James knew that. So he breaks out an illustration that might land close to home. Point two, the example, two kinds of attenders were tempted to treat some better than others. James's example here, beginning in verse two, is one that his readers and many followers of Jesus can relate to, the worship gathering of believers. Two contrasting individuals come into the meeting. And James Contrast them with the customs of the day. The rich man, the poor man. First, the rich man. In Roman society, he, he comes in wearing a lot of rings on his hand. He shows off his wealth. He knows how to demonstrate, I am somebody. I have wealth. The congregation is viewing him, whoa, somebody of grand social status. We're not told whether it's his first time there or whether he's a regular member. Long tenured. They saw his wealth, they knew his status, they treated him with special favor. In fact, they gave him special seating. It makes me think of some times that I've been in Africa, uh, usually there on a speaking or teaching role. And in Central Africa, in church services, it's customary to seat your guest um, on the platform in the best chair, so they face everyone else. And, and not just the folding chairs or the benches, but sometimes even there's a cushy couch up there. It's, it's both wonderful and awkward. <laughs> sometimes in hot Central Africa, they'll bring you a little fan. They may even bring you a bottle of Coke or a Fanta. 
And everyone else out there is sitting on hard benches, no fan, and they're not getting any drinks. The intent, I get it, is to honor the distinguished guest. It's well meant. But I've often wondered, how would I be treated if I wasn't a guest teacher or preacher? If I wasn't new to the church, if I didn't live far away, if I hadn't brought what will probably be the largest offering amount because they have so very little. I don't know. But that would be a test for that church. How do we treat people in the body of Christ? The other person in James's illustration here is a poor man. It almost sounds to us like a homeless man in our day, dressed in mismatched, stained, maybe smelly clothing. This person, their clothes, probably their education, their title, their money, their status, not worth highlighting. They may not even be average. They may be kind of bottom of the barrel, socially speaking. Not desirable. So they're told to sit in a less desirable place. They're not given fanfare. They're not given attention or affirmation. And that's the problem here. And James says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is castigating them if they're playing favorites. The congregation is guilty of social discrimination, he says, and they should know better. Jews who are now following Jesus, they knew the Old Testament. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. James knew that favoritism toward a certain class of people was wrong, wrong, wrong. That's not the way of Jesus Christ. Paul, if you read his letters, talks a lot about the distinction between Jew and Gentile. James, you read his letter here, rich and poor are a contrast. And James now turns to the foolishness of favoritism between them. Follow the logic, point three, destiny and character. Those to whom we show favoritism are often our detractors. Note, note the contrast here. James is saying, do you realize what you're doing? You're treating the poor like trash. But God, he esteems them highly. You're treating the rich like royalty. But the rich often treat you terribly. What are you doing? Why do you pander to those who often exploit you, drag you into court, oppress you? James' point isn't that God dislikes rich people. No. Rich people are made in the image of God too. But they also need salvation. And because of their wealth they're often less able to see their need. And they're more likely to mistreat you, James says. That's the logic of his point. After all, James says, doesn't Jesus lift up the poor? Luke chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are the poor, Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, of which James's letter is like a commentary on that. So many parallels here. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have the poor and you have the rich. You have the poor in spirit and you have the self-satisfied, often the wicked. 
Now, James isn't saying that to be wealthy means inherently to be wicked. Not true. In fact, I know a number of well-to-do people here at Grace who are models of generosity, of godly living, of grace in relationships. Why? Because their hearts have been transformed by Jesus Christ. And I commend them because God can save and transform rich people too. But the tendency in our world is to go in the other direction. Instead of being at a disadvantage, James is saying, the poor are actually at a spiritual advantage. They're better positioned to understand their need for God and for his salvation. David Platt says, James says that by neglecting the poor, we're negating the grace that lies at the heart of God. We ought to see everyone through the eyes of Christ. We ought to look at brothers and sisters around us, regardless of wealth or socioeconomic status, as those who, like us, are united to Christ, for Christ lives in them. And James says, instead of being at an advantage, the rich, including those among you, might actually be at a disadvantage, for their wealth tends to blind them to their need. You give honor to those who actually often work against you in society, James says. What are you thinking? What are you doing? Why do you disparage the poor? They often see their need. In fact, when you set them aside, you're often missing your best evangelistic opportunities for they know they need. The gospel lifts up the value of everyone before God because they're made in his image, rich and poor, everyone in between. And the gospel also levels everyone before God because everyone is in need of his grace. To discriminate is ludicrous. The gospel levels us in need. The gospel lifts us in value. Our world doesn't operate quite like that. We give credit to appearance and to wealth, to beauty, to skin color, to educational levels, to family connections, to nationality. And like I said, these things don't disappear when we come to faith in Christ. We retain many of those characteristics. But for those who know him, they are no longer the basis of our evaluation. Especially in the body of Christ. Doesn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.16, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. James is saying, echoing Jesus, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus saw everyone for who they really are. Gold fingers, flowing garments mean nothing to him. Neither did the shabby attire of the poor. For Jesus noted the heart, not the wardrobe. So should we. Well, by this point... You might be exasperated or feeling really good, maybe both. After all, we believe that all people have equal value, or at least we say we do. 
And as a church, we let anyone come into our gatherings. Even better here, we let you sit anywhere you want except for COVID season. (laughs) We're especially kind to. The latecomers often get the reward of sitting right down front. I mean, what more could you want? Extra crowns for all of you. We don't have a dress code. As long as you wear something that's modest, we don't tell you what to wear. This passage, we think, it doesn't apply to us. How could we be better? Or does it? How do we distinguish between people in our culture? What are the things that we notice out there that we're told to notice to divide and to separate us? What are the ways in which we're tempted to show favoritism? Rich and poor, for sure, James notes that. But are there other ways? Let me suggest that there are. What about race and ethnicity? This might be the hottest diversity hot button of our overheated times. Somehow, our society wants us to see everything through race and ethnicity lenses. So if I say the phrase, black lives matter, depending upon the person, that is either a self-evident truth or a rallying cry or an unfair accusation or a political agenda in wolf's clothing. We're told to be colorblind, which, by the way, God isn't, or to be color-defined, which flattens our uniqueness. If we're not careful, we'll mimic the world. But in the body of Christ, God gives us diversity as a gift. God creates diversity to show off his glory. And yet God brings them together in unity because of the work of his son. Every saved person, whatever they look like, belongs to Jesus. So we're family. The people around you who look different, think different, maybe act different, do you realize that's your brother, that's your sister? Do you treat them as such? What about age? In our culture, we we often separate, segment people by age. They're the college age, those in senior living, empty nesters, young marrieds, a whole lot of other age-graded categories. And all of those are bad. Some of those can be quite helpful. But if we're not careful, we begin to think and act like the world and to assign people of a different age a lower value. Do you know that in the body of Christ, a multi-generational church is a gift from God? That the people up there and the people down here, older and younger, have something to contribute to you, and you have something to contribute to them. They're not your enemy. They're your brother or sister. What about gender? I know men are from Mars, women are from Venus. The problem is we're living on planet Earth. (laughs) And we need each other. In fact, we're made for each other, not just a husband and a wife, but men and women in the body of Christ. We are a complement to one another. God designed it so. 
Do you see the opposite gender as a blessing from God? What about educational levels? You know, is the body of Christ for high or low IQ people? Is it for people working in the trades? Is it for the professor down at OSU? It's for both. And if we value each other, if we like each other, if we serve together, imagine what that says to a watching world. What about political differences? Can you live with someone? Can you even love someone who would not pass your voter guide? Or does the fact that they have an altered view on such things mean that they might as well not even be in the body of Christ? What about approaches to the pandemic? What if they sleep with a mask? What if they burn masks? What if they admire Dr. Fauci or despise Dr. Fauci? What if they swear by vaccines or are concerned by vaccines? Can you live with them in the body of Christ? Can you love them? Can you treat them as equally valuable? James says, pay attention. You might be more prone to favoritism and discrimination than you think. And the issue is a verdict, the law's standard. He says favoritism is a sin and worthy of God's judgment. Again, he uses a contrast here. He says there are those who follow the royal law, the law of Christ. Matthew 22 says this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And James quotes from the second from Jesus. Okay, but who is my neighbor? Well, that's been asked before. The answer, everyone in need, especially those around you. Especially, Jesus points out, those who are different than you, who look different, dress different, perhaps think different. Jesus used the parable of the Good Samaritan to make that point. And if that's how we ought to love our neighbor, how much more ought we to love our brother, our sister, in Christ's family. The rich one and the poor one, the black one and the white one, the immigrant and the citizen, the high school dropout and the PhD, the closet socialist and the raving capitalist. Because what we have in common in Christ far outpaces any of those other categories. Do you believe that? In obedience to their King Jesus, Doug Moo writes, Christians are to build among themselves a genuine counterculture in which the values of the kingdom of God rather than the values of this world are lived out. There's a contrast to the person who loves his neighbor. It's the one who shows favoritism. And James says you're a lawbreaker and guilty of breaking the entire law. You cannot selectively say, well, I do this and I don't do that. I do this and I don't do that, so I'm good before God. James says, if you are playing favorites, you've broken the whole law. 
It's like a crack in a window pane, the window pane is broken. It's like a tear in the cloth, the cloth is ripped. Favoritism can't be detached from the rest of the will of God as if it's an okay thing, everything else is in order. No, if you show favoritism, James says, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. You shatter the law of love. In a previous generation, um, they're often proud of their moral rectitude. They might have said at one point, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cuss or, or chew, and I don't go with girls who do. Okay, James would say, but do you show favoritism? A younger generation might say, I'm tolerant, I'm affirming, I, I'm open-minded, I'm non-judgmental. Okay, James would say, but do you show love? Because showing indifference to all is a sinful cousin to showing favoritism to some. And we're all called to show active love to each person made in the image of God, especially those in the body of Christ. James's practical moral approach to faith, Kent Hughes writes, cuts through all the religious words and rhetoric. James is saying that real faith is not indicated only by the big no-nos like murder and adultery, but how we treat people, especially the needy. James began with a command. He ends with a warning. Mercy versus judgment. How you treat others will boomerang back to you. How we live matters. We're going to see that in bold colors next week. Here James says, how you treat others is connected to how you will be judged. Are you living the law of Christ? Are you demonstrating the grace of God? Are you showing mercy to those made in his image? Reminds me of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 19. The parable of the unmerciful servant who had an a gargantuan debt forgiven of him and turned around and could not forgive a modest debt to someone else. He had no idea what mercy was. He had been shown it and he didn't get it. The fact that he couldn't show mercy showed that he didn't understand it. But Jesus says, again in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Let's put it all together. James is saying that when you have experienced that kind of mercy, you clearly know how to show mercy to others. God's mercy in you overflows from you. It's not saying that we need to be merciful to others in order to earn mercy before God. You can't earn mercy. It's mercy because it can't be earned. No, the text is saying you can tell who has received mercy from God by the way they show mercy to others. How we treat others matters. It demonstrates the love of Christ. And it shows a watching world they don't live with the same perspective as we do. How is that possible? How can we have that? Believers are marked by their genuine honor for everyone, especially those who belong to Christ. 
A couple of weeks ago, those of us who participated virtually in a pastor's conference got a collection of books as part of our registration. One of them is written by a younger lady, an apologist, a PhD from Cambridge named Rebecca McLaughlin, called The Secular Creed. You might see some colors there. You might have seen them in yards this past fall. She writes about what Christians ought to think about the claims made in our world. She ends her introduction with these words. Without Christian beliefs about humanity, the yard signs claims aren't worth the cardboard they're written on. So when we pass these signs, I tell my children that in our house, we believe that black lives matter because they matter to Jesus. We don't believe that love is love, but that God is love. And that he gives us glimpses of his love through different kinds of relationships. We believe women's rights are human rights because God made us male and female in his image. And for that same reason, we believe that babies in the womb have rights as well. We believe God has special concern for single mothers, orphans, and immigrants because Scripture tells us so again and again. And we believe that diversity does indeed make us stronger because Jesus calls people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him as one body together. And you and I can be the foretaste. Don't show favoritism. This is the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, who was the supreme example of how to treat others. And thank you for sending your spirit to those who trust in your son to teach us how to do likewise. We live in a lost, broken, angry world, but we've been called to peace and love from you. I pray that this church and that believers in this place, in this age, would show off what a God like that can do through us. Thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.